morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is September 24th, 2013. This is broadcast number 46. And, you know, this week has been a little bit nuts for me. I was commenting to Josh Sparkman, who is my assistant and helps me schedule guests uh, on the program. And I said, you know, this is three interviews in the same week. Um, Wow. So if you're listening and an avid listener to this podcast, you've already noted that. Um, you've listened to the recent one, and you're saying, well, wait a minute. He just did that another one the day before that. So, yes, I'm very busy this week trying to get material and information into the hands of you, the listener, on ma- matters of relevance, frankly, for the church. And so today, as a matter of fact, we have one of those subjects that is uh, a cultural issue. It's an issue that we are wrestling through as a church, and a particular denomination has taken up the task of dealing with uh, contemporary perspectives on sexual orientation. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's kind of an interesting title. wonder what that's all about. Well, pay t- stay tuned for the next hour or so, and you will hopefully learn what this report is all about. We'll be talking with uh, a ruling elder and a teaching elder in the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, and we'll be getting to that in just a minute. For those who've been living under a rock and don't know that we have a website, we have a website. Now you know. It's confessingourhope.com. You simply go there, all the information on our podcast, broadcast resources, information related to different podcasts are available for your use. They're all free of charge, by the way. My daddy used to tell me there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, there is such a thing as a free website. So you can use it to your heart's content, find out what's going on on the podcast. In addition, we have the GPTS mobile app. That is where you can take this podcast and other resources of the seminary wherever you want to go. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's available to you. Take advantage of these things as you are able. And of course, the seminary website is gpts.edu. If you're interested in information, resources from the school, or you just want to know more about Greenville Seminary, that website will help you uh, immeasurably. But if it doesn't, you can write us at info at gpts.edu, and somebody will respond to your questions. As I indicated, we'll be talking with two gentlemen, um, a ruling elder and a teaching elder in the RPCNA on a, a, a committee report, a document, a 47-page document that dealt, dealt with and deals with contemporary perspectives on sexual orientation, a theological and pastoral analysis. We'll be talking with Howard Heising, he's the ruling uh, ruling elder in the RPCNA, and Ken Smith Sr., who is a teaching elder. So, gentlemen, it's great to have you on, and I know, uh, especially for teaching elders, Tuesdays is the the traditional back-to-work day, (laughs) as it were, and... um, but I know you're both very busy men, and I appreciate the time you've taken to sit down with me and talk about this very important subject. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yes, and by the way, I am a retired pastor, so Tuesday's fine. Oh, very good. <laughs> it, absolutely good for golf, maybe even? Well, I, I played 18 yesterday, so probably won't play today. <laughs> I understand. I understand that two 18 holes back to back can be taxing for sure. But anyway, um, as I mentioned, you both are uh, ordained men, uh, one teaching elder, one ruling elder in the RPCNA. Why doesn't, um, why don't we, uh, Ken, why don't you tell us who is or what is the RPCNA um, and give us a little background as to the denomination? Well, The RPCNA is, of course, along with the other Presbyterian branches of the Church, from the historical development of the Reformation in Scotland. Mm. Now, the Reformed Presbyterian Church uh, particularly uh, had a struggle back in the 1600s over the whole question of whether the Church could be under the rule of the king. And that was a, a, a big issue, and that was a, it was over that issue that this group of people did not go along with the other uh, Reformation churches uh, in, when William of Orange established Presbyterianism as the state church of Scotland. And they said, 
we agree with Presbyterianism, we just don't agree that the king has the right to establish it. So that's where our background goes back to. So the big issue that led us to our being distinct was a an issue over whether Jesus Christ is King of Kings mm, mm. and Lord of Lords, or if he is just Lord of the Church. And, and the RPCNA has um, its own seminary, as I understand things. Yes, in fact, uh, we have our main seminary is here in Pittsburgh, <clears throat> and uh, but we have a uh, theological college up in uh, Ottawa, Canada. Mm-hmm. We also have a Presbytery in Japan that has uh, Kobe Theological Hall. So we're training men wherever. Wonderful. In fulfillment of that great commission to go into the world right. and make disciples. <clears throat> Wonderful um, outlook. Now, how many um, how many churches um, offhand, maybe you don't know exactly, but offhand is uh, currently um, in the RPCNA? Probably in the uh, RPCNA, it would be less than 100. I'm not exactly okay. sure either. Yeah, understood. Yeah, that's a good round number. Sure, sure. Now, in specific, we're, we're sitting down today to talk with both of you men on this, this committee report document that was um, put forward, and as I understand thing was understand things was uh, had already gone before General Synod for those guys in the OPC and the PCA. They're listening. Their General Synod is kind of like our General Assembly. Yes, just to help yeah. you out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And don't confuse the two. They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're virtually the same. So, but this report has already been approved by the General Synod. But it's interesting that these these kinds of reports don't just fall out of the sky. Um, there's background and information there's things that go on behind the scenes that result in the end of the committee's work which is this document i have currently before me um what is the genesis i'll start with howard on this how how did this start to even how did the wheels start to move as it pertains to this particular issue in the forming of the committee it started in a sunday school class hmm the question of, of homosexuality and the sexual orientation was of, of great interest, of course, and uh, it was uh, brought to the, the attention by kind of a general consensus, I guess, well, we'd like to talk about this, and uh, some ideas came to the forefront that didn't sound like uh, our traditional uh, theological approach to things. And so some very serious questions started to be asked, and uh, the the Sunday school class found itself unable to uh, really resolve some of these things, because some of the the newer ideas they were hearing uh, in this discussion um, were just difficult to put into context. And so it went to their local session, and the session grappled with it. And uh, they carried it a little bit further, brought some clarity to it, um, but then it was seen to be a, a bigger issue. And so the session brought it to their regional body, their presbytery, and that's where the very serious theological and sociological work started to happen on this whole thing. Uh, they looked around at other reformed bodies for some help, and there was some, uh, there was there was some good information out there, but there really wasn't a definitive position paper, and so they proceeded to do that. And because of the nature of it, they thought that this needs to go to the highest body in our church for for clarification, and that's when they took it to Senate. Great. Now, before we get into the, the deliberations of the committee and how the Senate received it and some of the discussions that were re- related there. How does this document itself, though it's a, it's an, a document of the RPCNA, and, and as, if I understand things correctly, it has some binding authority in some sense, and, and we're going to get to that and clarify some of those terms in a minute. But how would this document, or how would you hope that this document might help the average church-going God, man, woman who's just trying to get through their week? 
And, 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 and in fact, why even is this document so even necessary uh, in our world today? We were talking off air a little bit about that and maybe elaborate a little bit for us there. And I, I don't. It doesn't matter who answers. I, I keep forgetting I have two people. I keep forgetting I have two people on the phone. So um, anyway, why don't we start with Ken, and maybe you both can respond to that. Let me give you a little more background about the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Okay. <clears throat> the Reformed Presbyterian Church, of course, is committed to the uh, shorter catechism, the larger catechism, the Westminster Confession. But there's one other document that the Reformed Presbyterian Church has had from its inception, and that is what's known as a testimony. In other words, in our book of constitutional documents, we have what's known as the RP testimony. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the doctrines that are stated in the confession as brought to bear upon social issues of the day. It updates it. So this is, this is no new thing for the Reformed Presbyterian Church. We have the Confession of Faith, which is our point of reference, but we also have the testimony, which updates the Confession in the light of certain social issues. So this is, this is quite in line with our tradition. Yeah, and you mentioned the social issues because as we look at the news and we watch what's going on in Washington, we see that some of the, even within certain branches of Christendom, we see these issues making, for lack of a better way of expressing it, uh, pretty serious inroads into even the clergy. Um, states are now accepting same-sex marriage as viable and legitimate um, so this is really an important work that the committee did to try to bring biblical clar- clarity to a matter in a world that is not real clear on these things. That's and right. so That's right. And 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 I appreciate um how this was put together. Uh, you start the document starts out with really where every document of this nature ought to start with defining some of the terms. Um you start right away with the big question on what is homosexuality? What is that What's the genesis to that word? Howie? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because um, we just assume that um, the word homosexuality existed all throughout uh, Christendom, that uh, somehow the Apostle Paul had a Greek word for that, and the uh, fact of the matter is he, he had to invent a word, and uh, the word homosexuality itself didn't happen until... Uh, late 18th century, uh, 1800s, uh, and so uh, it's the whole discussion in terms of terminology is is new, uh, comparatively mm-hmm. speaking. And so, uh, when you have a word that is now used in our modern translations, uh, we we have to understand that uh, that word had some some impact when the word itself was invented. So, primarily, the scriptures are talking about the, uh, the playing out of someone who has an inclination in a certain direction. And that playing out uh, results in sin. So there's, there's a choice to do something. Um, I may have an inclination to do that thing. Someone else may not. But... Uh, if, if Scripture says uh, that uh, I'm a human being created in the image of God, and therefore these things are right and these things are wrong, um, that that starts to describe the context of what I understand to be sin. Um, but when we come to homosexuality and sexual orientation, there's in our current culture we have to talk about the inclination that's called homosexuality, and then the acting on that inclination, which is uh, homosexual activity. And that's Mm. what the word homosexual was uh, starting to address. There's an inclination, and our contemporary culture is now asking, uh, is that inclination uh, something that's uh, 
something that we're born with and cannot be changed, or is it something that uh, has some fluidity to it and can be addressed by the, the process of sanctification? Absolutely. Well stated. And it is interesting you touched on the aspect that that we hear about all the time, that, um, well, they're born that way, that's their natural bent, that's they're genetically geared in that direction. And then you have the other pole, the other opposite end of the spectrum that says, no, it's a choice, it's, a, it's they're acting out on their sinful desires. And so I think this document, in some sense, sets out to deal with that. Now, just for clarity, I want to, for the listener's sake, when we talk about homosexuality, uh, when we say what aspect of homosexuality is actually a sin on the participants' parts, in other words, if I have a if I have a, a, a temptation in the same-sex attraction area, if I'm tempted in that direction, is that in itself a sin, or is it acting upon that temptation? Could I uh, could I fill in just another word about the Absol- word homosexuality? Absolutely, absolutely. Because the word sodomy was the old word. Mm-hmm. And sodomy, uh, which is still, you can find sodomy in our documents, in our in our government, in the state documents. They speak about sodomy. Now, the average person wouldn't have a clue what sodomy is all about if he didn't know his Bible and didn't know anything about Sodom. Mm-hmm. You read that story, and you get a fair idea of the distortion that this can involve which is back to Howie's point about sin. Let me just, I just mm. wanted to tuck that in there so that... It was, oh, that's fine. Uh, Absolutely. The, the term I... homosexuality, don't you agree, um, uh, Howie, that this has replaced sodomy? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I have a friend that, that typically, he doesn't really like the word homosexual. He prefers to call them sodomites, but... Okay. I don't know if that's a good a good course. Frankly, I, I I sometimes bristle against that. I mean, we'd be an unnecessarily pejorative against people. I mean, homosexuality covers it, um, but they don't even like that. They prefer to be called gay, and so I won't use that term. I see. So um, they're not going to steal a good word from my vocabulary. <laughs> well, they've anyway. stolen a lot of good words, so... Uh... They have. I mean, even the rainbow. Um, I, I, some of the listeners will know this story. I, I worked for a company um, as an operations manager for, for a, a while, and the owner of the company was a homosexual. And knowing that I was a Christian, he hired me anyway, which I always thought was rather interesting, frankly. Um, God and his providence put me there for a season. and But I saw uh, the perversion of these types of elements, the words... They, they steal from my vocabulary, the, the rainbow, the, the, the covenant sign that God gave to Noah, perverted. Uh, very difficult to see as a Christian and see that on a regular basis, uh, day in and day out. So I have a little personal context to all of this. But is, is the attraction itself the sin? Um, I, I think the paper does a good job of uh, approaching mm-hmm. that question in that Yes. Um, the the attraction is we have to put the attraction in the context of our fallen nature, and our fallen nature is That's sinful. That's right. You have a whole section on the biblical doctrine of man, where you deal with these particular issues, um, and since we are in, in itself as sinful people, but isn't it true though? On, on the other hand, that it, you know, in any sin, whether it's the sin of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, whatever it may be, that I'm tempted by the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and I'm tempted in those areas. But the sin itself happens when I begin to think on that temptation, I begin to move in that direction, and then I actually fall into that thing. Isn't that yes. the typical understanding of it? Yes. Uh, so, so if a person in your church... If temptation is a crossroads, so our, our sinful nature is um, in conflict with our redeemed nature... And uh, the question at that point is, uh, <laughs> where, where am I going to go? Where am I going to move? Am I going to resist that temptation, or am I going to give into it? And giving into it right. is is the the specific action of sinning. 
resisting it is a specific action of redemption. Yeah, I, I don't That's think we correct. can. I don't think we can call temptation sinful. Mm-hmm. Jesus was tempted. Very but good. He didn't sin. <clears throat> it's like you say, Howard. Whether you yield to it or not. Yeah, and when we're dealing with this issue of same-sex attraction, uh, I had, as I share with you gentlemen off-air, um, I, I had an interview with a man a few weeks back um, who has a pretty, um, I don't want to say successful, that's not the right word, it's a pretty diligent ministry um, to, to members in his own congregation that struggle with this sin. Um, just like I might struggle with gossip or I may struggle with some other sin, uh, they they struggle with this, but because of the climate and the culture, especially in the church, these people often struggle alone with absolutely no pastoral assistance and guidance whatsoever. Yes, and so and so they they inevitably fail their, uh, fall into their desires um, because they don't feel the freedom to actually sit down with a man in their church and say, you know, brother, I have to admit that I I wrestle with this tremendously. So I want to I want to be clear on this is that when we're talking about people in the church, there may be people listening to this program that say, you know, I really wrestle with this. Am, am I in sin because I'm wrestling, um, or is the sin actually engaging in the behavior? And uh, and that's a, just a clear a point I want to be real clear about as we move into this report. Now, let me jump to the end of the report, um, just for time's sake and, and other factors. What was the goal of the committee? When, when drafting this report, I mean, originally you said it was to bring clarity to a situation that happened from a Sunday school class and the session dealt with it. But what, as the committee worked, certainly the goals became, I would suspect, more refined, more sharpened. And what was your desire to see this report do um, for the RPCNA at large? And I don't care who answers, it doesn't matter. Both of you can answer that question. You may have different perspectives well, go on ahead, that, Howard. as a matter of fact. Well, I think the, the main goal was to give the church a tool to answer some questions that uh, had lost their clarity. There was a great deal of confusion in the church. There's a great deal of confusion today. Um, the, the liberal side of, of the, the question is using a lot of good, uh, viable Christian terms that uh, any Christian would like to buy into, uh, terms like equality, terms like love, uh, terms like commitment, uh, and there's a whole list of them that, uh, mm-hmm. that sound very enticing, and then they apply those, that thinking to the specific scriptural verses that talk about homosexuality, and they, um, they make the argument that scripture doesn't really condemn homosexuality in the way that we have uh, commonly thought about it. And so there's a strong case for legitimizing um, a homosexual inclination and even homosexual relationships and homosexual activity. And in the context of these good Christian words, uh, it becomes very confusing, and then it becomes something that uh, even a lot of Christians are saying, well, sounds good to me, and they're, they're going along mm. with the whole argument. So we were trying to bring some clarity, number one, and then provide some tools to deal with the question in the real lives of real people in a very loving and compassionate way. Yes, and I, and, and I, and, and I so much appreciate the sixth section of this report, because there you, you take up the pastoral issue. And I've often said to my fellow students here at seminary that many issues in the church are not only theological, they're also very pastoral. And sometimes those issues have to be dealt with with both of those views in mind. Um, it's, it's not so much this is wrong, but now what do we do pastorally to deal with that which is theologically incorrect? I think that's right, and, and I think... I think you have to see this uh, temptation and sin in the context of all kinds of others like it that people may be struggling with and have not getting the help that you were talking about. Absolutely. Uh, 
and and the whole arena of counseling, which has taken over so much of what we used to call pastoral care, uh, mm-hmm. is an attempt to try to help people resolve those issues on the base of Scripture. And let, let me just tuck in here that this this report is built on the premise that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's our point of reference. That's why you find the section in the exegesis and confessional statements. That's right. Uh, and that that is so crucial for for helping people to see what God says about it. Yeah, it, it, it's great, bec- and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because what you did, I think, in this report, I think wisely, is you built that theological foundation um, with these exegetical considerations, as I scanned through them brief, uh, just quickly, uh, the, the vast majority, if not every single one of these passages that are listed in this report, are the same passages that the opponents of scriptural, the scriptural position on this, on this issue use to beat us up with, or try to beat right. us up with. Yes. And so you exegetically go through these very carefully to lay that biblical foundation before you even move into the pastoral realm, because what, what pastoral theology is worth anything if it's not built on the, 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 that solid foundation of sound biblical analysis and understanding? And, and so I very much appreciate the way that that was done. You didn't flip it over. You didn't say, these are the pastoral implications. And oh, by the way, we have the Bible here, too, to help us support it. No, you, you, you said the Bible is where we're standing. And because of that, we are going to seek to minister to people in a pastoral yeah, way. And I think you have to be conscious of the fact that there's a great division in the church today about the Bible. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with Rosaria. Champagne, who uh, was a homosexual, and she asked me what I believed about the Bible. And I said, Well, there are two popular views of the Bible. One is you've got to learn the language and hone your skills to find out what in that book is the Word of God. I said, The other approach says, Learn your languages, hone your skills because this is the Word of God. Now, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and if Scripture does speak to all things of importance, faith and practice, um, this area that you've dealt with uh, certainly is what I would fall, put into the whole practice realm. Uh, how do we live before a holy God um, as His creatures? Right. Um, you mentioned this uh, this woman. Um, I'm just looking at the notes that uh, Mr. Sparkman has that he tends to give me for interviews and whatnot. And um, I'm glad you brought that up because I'd actually forgotten about it. Um, and it, as it's related to a lay listener or a person that's you know in the pews, as it were. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and um, in discussion. I do, I do want to spend for the balance of our time at this point, I mean, obviously for the listener's sake, we can't possibly in one hour try to compress the work of the committee in this 47, this 47 page document. Uh, is this document, gentlemen, is this a public document? Yes. Sure. So, so you would not be opposed to me putting that resource on the website so that people could, as they're listening, they can have it in front of them, look through it. Well, if Amazon can do it, you can do it. Okay, fine. I just, I should have asked off air. I, I put you on the spot a little bit there. I apologize. Um, I didn't think it was an issue, but anyway, I just sort of went out on a limb. Could I interrupt you briefly? Just a Absolutely. Um, it, I don't think it's known, but the synod was not only concerned about having this study done, published, and made available. They also wanted something that was a handout to put in the hands of people who didn't want to go into that kind of a study, but wanted to Mm. know something. So we have a flyer, uh, which is brief, and it's it's entitled, it's just one page, folded like a folder, you know, Uh, Uh and it says, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? 
And I think it's excellent. It's a it's a brief of the it's same teaser, but it's where would that be found? Is that available on your website on the RPCNA website? Well, it's the same source of the uh, the book. Crown yeah. Crown and Covenant Publications uh, has the okay. documents. Great. I will uh, try to find secure or find that. Um, to help the listeners and uh, use that resource. And if, you know, they may not have that issue, but they may know friends do. Um, I had a friend when I was growing up as a teenager who just admitted to me one day, uh, we were friends for two years and um, just flat out admitted to me that he was a homosexual. I mean, out of, out of left field. And um, in, in, in his reaction, my reaction was understandable. I just kind of looked at him with this look. I don't know. I don't remember what I looked like, but I, my, I know what my brain was doing. Not nothing. It was blank. And but I looked at him, and he said, "Does this mean we can't be friends anymore?" Uh, That's what he said. Good question. And I and I looked at him, and I said, "Why would it mean that?" I, yeah, I I mean, I was just kind of taken aback by that reaction, even though he knew I went to church and I was, you know, a good Christian boy. Actually, I wasn't a good Christian boy, but I was a Christian regardless. Okay, but the point is, is that that was that was his reaction that, that, because that's that's their bias, that's their presupposition that if I admit that I'm a homosexual to a Christian, they'll no longer be my friend. That's too bad. And and if we have something like this little this teaser flyer, however you want to word it. You know, perhaps there's Christian men out there or, or ladies who have that situation and they can say, look, you know what? We're still friends. I mean, but let me help you. I want to teach, show you what, what is the, what, what do I believe the Bible teaches on this in a loving, compassionate way, instead of condemning judgmental, uh, we tend to get from the news media, um, or other places. Uh, I'm thinking of a church in the middle of our country that goes to these soldiers funerals and other things and has these horrible signs up there i think okay um but anyway that's a different subject for another day let's talk about the pastoral implications um because i think these are um very helpful i think the average person that goes through this will uh readily understand that and and what i want to read i want to read the opening paragraph because i think it sums up a little bit of what we've already talked about a free pre- uh, the, the document says a few preliminary points need to be made up front. First, while same-sex sins are treated very seriously in Scripture, and they are, they are not all that different from other temptations common to human experience. And, and I think we've already talked about that. It goes on to say homosexual sins are not unforgivable. Great point. Absolutely <laughs> essential point. It, as far as I know... It is not the unforgivable sin. And so what does that give, what kind of hope did that statement, whether you intended this or not, does that give to a person who maybe is in your denomination, is reading this document and saying, these people hate me because I'm homosexual. And then they read that statement and they say, wait a minute, you know what? There is forgiveness to me because of this, this, this pastoral approach. Was that the intention of the committee to, to sort of lay that out there and say, hey, look, you know, we're not saying that you're doomed and going to hell because you struggle with the sin? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, this is, this is a ministerial document. Mm, it's a ministerial document. It is to help those of us who are responsible for shepherding the sheep to be able to shepherd them, not drive them away. And That's I've, right. I, I've, I've had uh, homosexuals in our congregation. And, and, mm. and, and, uh, but the, the difference was um, whether they were practicing or not. Uh, That's and right. That, that was the difference. And, and I worked with guys trying to help them all along. I don't know if I ever discussed that with you, Harry, but um, I we had people with all kinds of problems, and that was just one of them. Did you both serve in the same church? Out of curiosity, we're same from. Uh, I'm on. I'm on the west coast. Ken is on the. Oh, wow! It's really early where you are. But uh, we met each other many, many years ago, and have been good friends for for a long time. 
Okay. Uh, that happens and, and in a other... small denomination, and it's it's kind of oh nice. yeah, sure, sure. Now, is one are, are one of you from Pittsburgh done? I think I picked up on yeah, that I'm earlier. Yeah, I'm from here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> from here, yeah. Uh, well, I see and, your Pirates finally made the playoffs. That's uh, right, boy. That's right. I think they forgot what that looked like. <laughs> let, let me add a, a little personal touch here. Uh, sure. Ken was chosen to be on the committee largely because he has dealt uh, very pastorally mm-hmm. with uh, with homosexuals within his congregations and. Uh, and I was put on the committee because uh, I personally um, have a history of struggling with uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, I'm, I'm happily married for over 40 years, have two wonderful kids, but uh, that's only because of the grace of God. And uh, so we, we brought personal um, and heartfelt uh, feelings to the whole study and uh, to what was being prepared, and uh, we are here giving our, our hearty consent to that work. Yeah, and it's interesting you said that uh, by way of personal um, reflection, because the, the the very next page of this pastoral section on the report says it is not considered politically correct today to acknowledge that changes in sexual orientation are possible. And I happen to know that from, a, from firsthand experience, witnessing, as I shared earlier, um, dealing with 30% of my staff that worked for me were homosexual. Mm. Wow. I inherited them. Wow. I inherited them, but I had, because of that, I, I mean, there was a lot of things I had to wrestle through personally, um, leg- legally, and all a host of stuff, and things that I thought I'd never have to experience as a manager on the job, but it isn't. It's not politically correct. It's almost, though, as if someone in that lifestyle uh, comes to Christ or they, and, they're, and, and Christ renovates their life, redeems them, and, 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 and frees them from this bondage. It's as though they betrayed one of their own. That that's how they're treated. And um, and it's not so. It's not politically correct to talk about that these people can actually not be caught up in these things. And then you go on to say deep-seated desires are never resolved easily. And that's true about if, if you've been in the pastoral ministry even for a few days, you realize that most problems on the surface are only the on the surface that there's deep issues way below the waterline that affect these kinds of things. The tone of this whole section is just very hopeful. And, and I commend both of you for that um, really very gracious extension of God's mercy and grace to the, to a sinner who struggles with this, but there's hope in Christ. There surely is. You're not alone. And, and um, you know that first Corinthians I, six passage is often quoted. Mm-hmm. It's quoted in our, in our book. But it says, such were some of you, not such are some of you. That's right. Now, you talk about some practical guidelines in this section. I mean, every pastor, I don't care if you're in the RPCNA or not, every elder and pastor in Christ Church ought to read this section. Some pastoral guidelines to help work with and deal with those, as you say right here in the, on page 41, to help those with same-sex desires. And the first item is, is trust. Now, we're real short on time, so if one of you would take trust and just summarize, what do you mean by trust? What, what's going on there? Well, you know, well, that, you, that, you know all about that, Howie. <laughs> Pardon me? You know all about uh, that. Go on, talk about it. <laughs> that, that trust works both ways. Um, someone... Right struggling with the same-sex attraction is likely to feel um, an increased amount of, of shame because of the, of the cultural context they're living in, especially if that context is the church. And they're often very reluctant to, to share their struggle. So they need to trust someone with this very intimate and dynamic part of their life. And mm-hmm person listening in a a pastoral kind of way um, needs to trust the Lord in working through these things, because there will inevitably be questions that that go beyond the uh, the struggler's ability or the the counselor's ability, and uh, you end up having to trust the Holy Spirit to work through these things. So there's there's an element, there's a 
context of trust. It, it involves uh, often confidentiality, and it often involves um, just a, a peace and relaxing. A lot of listening has to take place. Mm-hmm. To come in and uh, come in with, with a lot of answers immediately is often not helpful, even if those answers prove to be correct later on in the discussion. Uh, and, and this may take um, days or weeks or months to, uh, to listen through uh, someone's story and, uh, mm. and to trust that uh, God is able to, to redeem in the midst of that. Yeah, well said. And and because of time, I obviously we can't deal with each one of them. They're extensive. Um, again, I encourage the listeners to get this document. It will be on the website. Um, if you, if only for the pastoral section. I hope you read the whole thing. But this pastoral section is is worth its weight. Frankly, um, I want to jump down to the wholesome fellowship. Why is that so important when you're dealing with somebody with this particular struggle? Why is that fellowship so critical? Um, well, and whoever... you can answer that. Uh, th- there's another book um, out uh, that involves the testimony of uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield that uh, Ken has mentioned, and uh, the, the the fellowship and the support context uh, with the gay community as opposed to the church was very dynamic in mm. her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just like, I mean, and I, and I think in some sense, just like we need, we may not be struggling with same-sex attraction, but we may be struggling with some other sins. We need that fellowship with like-minded believers who walk in this world as pilgrims, struggle with sin just like I do. It may not be the same sin. It may be the same sin. But regardless, uh, we need that uh, Christ, as I just commented to a friend of mine recently, we were never meant to live this Christian life by ourselves. That's right. Um, He's given us the church. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ to help and lean upon, to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, and I could go on. So I think that's a very helpful section. Jumping ahead even further, let's talk about repentance. Why is this so important in this big picture of this particular crisis or issue with a person's life? Well, repentance, unlike what some people think, is a daily posture for all Mm, Christians, mm. not Mm -hmm. just for them. And the the Reformers taught the perseverance of the saints. They did not teach directly eternal security. They did... But the point was that the evidence of one's being in Christ was his daily walk. That's right. And it wasn't something based upon somewhere back along the line I prayed the prayer. No, no, Mm. no, 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 no. Most people don't come to Jesus in one decision like that. They come to Christ over a period of time. There is a decision in there. But there's a working of the Holy Spirit that changes the character, changes the nature of a person. He has a new nature, which is what he mm. cultivates. And there's hope in that for all uh, sinners. Hallelujah. That's right. I mean, I, I'm often, I'm often um, uh, remind myself, frankly, that the, the purpose of the cross for the unbeliever is to bring them to faith. But as believers, we need the cross as much as mm-hmm. they do. And every, every day we need to visit the cross. Every time we see our own sin, we need to look... What, what do the Puritans say? For every look at my own sin, I need to look twice at the mm-hmm. cross, or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm sure I butchered that quote, but that's the idea. Anyway, lastly, um, and definitely not, uh, last, but definitely, definitely not least, is the idea of prayer. How does prayer work with these people, I mean, in, in this struggle? Why is it so essential? Howie, you've been there. It's, you've been it's there. our lifeline uh, to, to God. It's our lifeline to, to Christ uh, and to all the, the work that he does. Um, we, yeah. we are uh, 
often, and this is not a bad thing, but we're, we're often prone to say, I will pray for you. And uh, so I, I'm left with the idea that uh, somewhere, somehow, sometime, this person's going to pray for me. And, and that can be very encouraging. But if that person, well, we're talking about very intimate things here, things that affect the, yes. the dynamics of my life. If that person prays for me right then, uh, the power of that, uh, the intimacy of that prayer at that moment can be uh, extremely powerful. Uh, we don't have to wait until we, we pray. We don't have to put on a particular shawl or a particular hat. Uh, we can do it hmm. anywhere, anytime. Yeah. And I think as Christians, we need to uh, access the throne of grace um, much more often and much more uh, frequently with, with an intimacy and a dynamic that uh, may be there all the time, but it's not always seen. And a person struggling with something like this needs to uh, have that demonstration of uh, accessing all the, the power and the glory and the help of God uh, mm -hmm. just between the, the, the two people. And it, That's it, right. It's very, very dynamic. Prayer is absolutely essential. And in, in praying, especially in, in an issue like this, where I would suggest, in fact, if, I'm guessing, of course, when I say this, but I would venture to guess that I'm not too far off what's accurate. But the majority of ministers and elders in the church today, this particular subject is um, not something that they are readily able to deal with because it's, it's, it's not that it's new. It's just now more pointed and open in our churches, where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it, it just wasn't. It wasn't something that was readily known and being dealt with as it is today, as, as the homosexual community is becoming more bold in their approaches um, we see people now being more willing, actually, to say, hey, look, I struggle with this. Um, and, and then in this idea of praying about these matters, especially in this one, we're acknowledging to God, look, this is beyond our wisdom. We, we don't know what to do. or We're helpless to, to minister to these people. I mean, it doesn't really matter what sin that is. It's all true. But even, I think especially in something like this, where there is so many deep-seated issues that are at the core of the issue. So... I did appreciate that element. Um, prayer just expresses our total dependence upon God by its act. When we pray to God, we're saying we don't have the answers. We are depending on you to work and move and act of your good pleasure. And, and that's what prayer is, right? And I, so we thrust ourselves on his mercy when we try to minister to people who are, are really hurt and broken. I think, uh, I think you, should, you, you don't want to skip over this idea of the difference between acceptance and approval. That's right. Because That's so right. much of our culture cannot make that distinction. God You're absolutely does. right. And uh, yep. when we, I think that, that the homosexual community cannot make that distinction. Because if I don't accept their style, I don't I mean, if I don't approve their style, they think think I don't accept them. That's right. Yep. Isn't that I, true? I high? completely agree, and that is such an that's, important that's, distinction to make. And I'm glad you did that. I'm sorry. That's that's very important. And um, it is. It's, it's very important. It's a very definitive uh, difference in the whole discussion in our culture. That's right. Well, gentlemen, look, we're out of time. Unfortunately, I would. I could go on, we could go on for another hour, I think, and talk about these subjects, especially some of the personal experiences you both have had in dealing with this. But I want to commend both of you um, and, and the work of the committee um, for writing this document, not as a theological, necessarily a theological treatment, but, but balancing the, the scales, both in the pastoral realm and, and realizing we're dealing with real people, with real hurt and real struggle. Uh, kind of like we were and are, if not for Christ. And and so I really appreciate the tone of which this is written. Um, I, I commend my listeners to read it. I don't think you'll get lost in the verbiage. Um, it, it's not an exegetical paper. 
It's a pastoral approach to a very difficult cultural issue that we are facing every day now. And frankly, it's going to get worse. Could I tuck a word in there before we quit? Absolutely. Uh, I think Howie and I and the rest of the committee would like to give uh, our appreciation to our editor, Michael Mm, Webb. Michael is a gifted, gifted scholar and writer. And I think I think our committee was totally depending upon him to put in words what we wanted to say, and he did it. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm sure he would uh, be humbled by your um, your public statements of that nature. Matt, I thank you um, for taking the time. I know it could have been golfing. It's okay. I'm just kidding. Um, but I thank you for taking the time to talk with me on this on what I think is a very important subject. I will make this document available for our listeners to read and carefully consider and read through and, and take to heart, um, and I hope that they do. I hope the Church does at large, not just in the RPCNA, but wherever Christ's name is proclaimed, that the Church would realize that uh, we have a mission here. And um, this, I think this document helps. It helps bring clarity. It helps bring pastoral emphasis in a, in a situation that, frankly, most of us, throw up our hands and go, I have no idea what to do. Um, and I, so I thank you for taking the time thank to you speak for with having me us. today. You're welcome. Absolutely. You're welcome. Now, if you will hold on the line just for a minute while I wrap things up, I just want to let everybody know, the listeners out there, what's coming up on the podcast. Um, as it stands right now, um, Star Mead will be my guest on the next broadcast. We'll be sitting down with her and talking about how to use the Heidelberg Catechism in your family devotions, family worship. It's an ex- excellent approach. And so I look forward to that discussion with her on a subject that, frankly, most families need to pay more attention to, family worship. It's, for some reason, it's, it's non-existent or very rarely existent in our churches today. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why we see our, the culture captivating our children. I don't know. Maybe. It's a theory I have um, that could very well be true. And so we'll be sitting down with uh, Star Mead to talk about her book, on family worship using the Heidelberg Catechism. So until next time, I do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.